Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things to that end. I sometimes look at listeners' first pages and give suggestions on how I could make them even better. I sometimes give advice and sometimes talk through what I'm going through as a writer. Sometimes I do little free courses that you you can do every day that help you work on your writing and occasionally I get other authors onto the show to talk about their writing, talk about their experiences, to give their perspectives and to let you and you know if I'm honest me know how to write because I like to present myself as an authority and then and then I and then I sort of dig my toe in the carpet and say don't listen to me don't listen to me I'm a fool and then I get other people on and I learn something every time. Like, I learn something every time I have people on. And then I get worried that I'm saying too much about learning stuff because I feel like I'm being a bit corny. And then I tie myself up in knots. And that's fine. That's just me. Um, Hello, how are you? Sorry, that was a unnecessarily downbeat start to... I'm, I'm super happy at the moment and I'm really, really jazzed. Partly because I've had a cup of coffee and a nap and I've woken up feeling absolutely sparkly and, if I'm honest, a little bit frisky. And and, and secondly, because uh, I'm really excited to present today's uh, show to you. I had a chat with the author Tasha Suri. Uh, I've been... It took me a while to like pluck up the courage to ask if she'd like to come on the show. I, I've been um, a fan of her work and... Um, read a lot of her content on Twitter as well for a a long time Um, and she was always someone who was writing really uh, interesting exciting fantasy you know that my heart is belongs to fantasy um, as much as I love all genres and um, I really really wanted to ask her to come on the show but it just took me a little while to um, pluck up the courage and then various things uh, she had a lot of work on so uh i had to be a patient but finally we got to chat and it was well worth the wait because i just really enjoyed um every moment of it apart from obviously <laughs> the moments where where I, i'm feeling shy and awkward um but it was you know that's me that's just how i interact with human beings i i, I think it says a lot about human beings that despite my um often feeling nervous interacting with you lot um it's always always worth it and i always come away enriched and that was true today we talk about lots of things we talk about of course how she got started in stories and writing and her process of you know discovering that she wanted to make stories uh, a really nice trace a really nice path from the first stories that she wrote as a child to the ones she's creating today i think there's quite a clear through line there we talk about well writer as an identity and um the workshop process how that affected both of our work actually um we talk about fantasy as a genre we talk about romance and what her uh, sense of what that means as a genre, what what romance is versus having a love story, um, and we talk about uh, trying to write for a 
Western audience, but maybe represent parts of a culture that they aren't familiar with. We talk about, uh, you know, including in fantasy and science fiction, where you're always presenting a world that the readers don't know because it doesn't exist because you made it up. But also maybe with a lot of fantasy, actually, you're covering stuff that they are familiar with because sword and sorcery is often very familiar to the readers and actually they do kind of know what to expect all those kind of things and i thought it was really interesting uh really thoughtful conversation i really enjoyed i I felt sort of challenged and uh stimulated and a lot of the time (laughs) i did that awful thing of uh tasha getting to the end of what she was saying and i'd just be in a kind of stupor because it sparked so many thoughts in me where I was going, oh, that's such a good point. Wow, how insightful. What a great... And it made me think of this and it made me think of this. So she would finish talking and I'd be just there kind of um, punch drunk on inspiration and, uh, and, and, and being like a big silly going, whoa, great, great point. Which uh, so I, I just... I mean, that is my authentic response to people. I, I, I know I can seem like a like a little bit of a sort of starry-eyed loon sometimes when I have people on the show it's not a put on when I'm kind of going wow wow man that's really deep like that is my genuine authentic response um <laughs> so and you know what some a little through line that I've noticed with loads of authors I've spoken to this is a really consistent is that whenever people say the things that are kind of like most interesting or insightful, they almost always immediately go, sorry, I was rambling, or I think I didn't answer your question, or I think I strayed off the point. And, and it's always when they've just said some a bunch of really interesting, when they've kind of like hit upon things and given really honest, um, unscripted, authentic answers. And I, I think that's what this, it was just, it was just, I just had a great time. And I, I don't need to sort of gild the lily any more than that, because you're going to hear it. So rather than, because if you're anything like me, I've, I've done a lot of comparing in my life. And you do, there is a moment where you've got to be a little bit careful of not bigging someone up too much before you bring them on. Otherwise, the audience starts to fold their arms and go, well, hang on, I'll be the judge of that. Thank you. You know, like, you know, no one likes to be told what to expect. But anyway, really, really enjoyed the um, conversation. And we recorded it uh, just over a week or so before her new novel, The Jasmine Throne, comes out in the UK. Um, I think at the time of releasing this episode, it's a week away from coming out. So, And it's the beginning of a fantasy trilogy so you can jump on board now what an excellent time to check out her work and yeah i'll put a link in the show notes but if you are listening to this today on the day of release then you could even you could even pre-order or phone up your local bookshop uh, your local bricks and mortar bookshop and pre-order because you know writers are always saying this but pre-orders are they're like the they're like a double good thing for for authors that would be amazing anyway i'll put a link in the show notes where you can um grab yourself a copy or just you know what for the first time two years ago i actually rang my local bookshop and said hello can i pre-order a book and i thought they would 
I, th- I don't know why I thought that they would be like, what? Are you mad? And they were like, yes, of course. What's your name? And I said my name and they said, I pre-ordered it for you. And that was it. And I am nervous on the phone, right? And it was lovely and fine. Um, so I would I, I would honestly try it one day. You, you may find it, like me, incredibly liberating. Um, anyway, the final little bit of admin before um, I hand you over to Tasha is just to say, if you enjoy the show, um, there's a link to my coffee page in the show notes. It's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. If you love the show and the content I'm putting out, I have to give over between sort of a day and half a day a week to make the podcast. I don't have to. I do it because I love to. Um, I would like to also be able to um, feed myself and um, look after my family. So if you are able and you enjoy the show, I'm always going to keep it free and not going to keep anything behind a paywall because I think creative writing, too much creative, many creative writing resources are completely inaccessible to anyone who isn't middle class um, or is, isn't is on a high income. And I would like it to be available to writers, no matter their income. Uh, uh, and we've now got over 300 episodes of content and resources. And, you know, I think I can say without without hyperbole that it's become because I've had all these contributions from other authors as well. So, you know, I've got over 72 hours, over three straight days and nights of interviews with authors, writers, poets, neuroscientists, publishers, uh, agents about this. I've got two free courses um, that are all available, over 300 episodes. I think it's, you know, one of the one of the biggest and best audio resources for writers available anywhere now because it's just slowly built up and that's thanks to support of people like you so if you'd like to do that yeah it's uh, coffee.com forward slash tim clare um, i really appreciate it and i really appreciate everyone who despite there being no you know there being no reward system for people who um support the show uh that so many people chip in it's just like you're awesome like the, the the kind of like open guitar case busking model um works so well and i just really appreciate it because there's loads there's loads of you out there i know loads of people listen to this show um and uh, that's just thrilling and thank you very much because i love doing it and i would like to continue doing it forever um okay thank you very much for hearing me out I hope everything is good with you. I hope your writing is going well. I've got loads of different things to share with you. I've had loads of great listener submissions as well, so I'm looking forward heartily to jumping back into them. But for today, here is my chat with the author, Tasha Suri. I hope, sincerely, you enjoy it. Anything else? Everyone's having like a slight time warp sense. With Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I, I, I have no idea how time has moved at all. <laughs> Um, you you must be, I mean, I'm assuming you must be really excited, though, because speaking of time, like, moving on, you've got, what what is it, like, a, a is it like a, a week now? Yeah, it's a week. It's a week. Um, I guess I am, I'm really excited, but I'm also quite nervous. And, um, and it's, and I know it's kind of an excited nervousness that's almost pointless, because the book will come out, and then I'll have no idea how well it's doing, ever. 
So <laughs> it's just it's a it, yeah. it's a weird thing because you've you've been through this process a few times now. How how has mm-hmm. that how has that been for you? Like because I think we all have as writers a feeling that of the moment that it's going to be a momentous day when our first book comes out and hits the mm, shelves mm. what has your experience of like launch day actually been because it I, I i don't know like i speaking to some writers it's kind of a it's kind of funny and and it's not always quite what you expect it, it to feel like how has it been for you with previous books when they've come out it's it's a weird experience i think that um I think it's I think it's quite I don't know any writer who hasn't found it an emotionally kind of fraught experience in some way, because, you know, if you want to write books, I think it's a huge dream to be in a position where your book comes out and then the dream happens and then your life goes back to normal. Um, And I don't know what it feels like if you sort of if you write a book and you hit the New York Times bestseller list or something, because I imagine that feels slightly different. But I think for 99% of authors, even if you've done well or you've done badly, it, it all sort of comes to much of a muchness. You know, the book comes out and then nothing because it, you can't tangibly see. One, you can't tangibly see any evidence that of success. And two, what does success look like? And, um, you know, is success selling loads of books? Is success... Um, having lots of reader response is success. Just the fact that you've written a book. I think the the barriers are always moving. Um, so I always warn people when their book is debuting that you're going to be really excited and nervous and then you're going to have a huge mental crash about a day or two or a week after the book comes out because it will just hit you in a very strange way. All these expectations and hopes and dreams you had have come to fruition in a way, but also not And I don't think there's any way that um, reality can match your dreams. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that it's it's a humongously weird experience. And you can't prepare yourself for it. Do you think it gets easier with like later with like once you've been through the process a couple of times? Um, Because that's another thing where I've had a range of responses from different people. writers um you know do you do, 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 I, I don't mean to say that you get jaded i don't mean you go ah oh, another another one of my my masterpieces out in the world i've done another one but like what what's that feeling when you're kind of like because because now you're you know you're you, you you've you've got you know you've got some books un, under your belt so you've been through that experience you have a sense of what to expect how's it feeling how's it feeling this time I'd be curious to hear what writers who've been in the industry for like a decade say. I imagine that's slightly different. Um, I'm still, I I still kind of feel the same things. I still feel really hopeful and nervous and excited and unsure of what to expect. And I'm still measuring myself up against literally every other book coming out, which is a completely pointless task and doesn't tell you anything, but I'm still doing it mostly to have something to do because much the same with a debut you have very little control over how the book's received and how well it's going to do and you wish you had some kind of level of control etc i guess the good thing is that i have um a baseline or a sense of what i'm going to feel and how real those feelings are and how much weight i should give them and what kind of framing i should give them so i can be nervous and be hopeful and be like maybe this book will do the best of any book that's ever been written but i also know that in reality 
um, what is likely to happen and what I can hope for and what would be nice things that I'm looking forward to that I can expect and what are some things that I should brace myself for. So I know that I'm probably going to feel quite low in about a week after the book comes out, which is natural, but I can also really, really enjoy and, and sort of I can allow myself to really enjoy reader responses and reader reactions that are sent to me that are positive. And I can just enjoy the book being in shops and um, enjoy the reaction of my friends and family. All of those are just nice things I can focus on without worrying about everything else. Yeah, that's so. I mean, I know this is going to this is going to sound like incredibly vapid, but like I think because it's such a nice time of year you know you get lot you might you're going to get lots of instagram shots of people like with their book in the sunshine reading your book and, and <laughs> I, I know uh, you know after years of kind of like reading and themes and literariness to go oh you know you might see your book on a lovely tartan blanket in the sunshine but actually i found that like because it's it's like you've talked about that tan- that lack of tangibility just seeing the book in the wild, so to speak, you go, oh, it's a thing, like it exists beyond me. And that's, it's doing, you get some proof that it's doing what it's meant to do, which is be experienced by other people. And I found that really exciting in a way that sometimes even more than reviews, because I just knew the book was out there somehow. Right, like it has a life of its own that's totally separate from you. And there's going to be plenty of people who read it dog-eared and you know they carry it around in their bag that you'll never hear about because of course it's not actually about you anymore that book is its own thing that goes to its own people which is wonderful i think one of the nicest things i saw was someone tagged me in um their reading and they'd highlighted certain bits and i was like that's lovely because that's the kind of thing that i do when i'm reading a book but i wouldn't necessarily tell the author about it but it's just a nice thing that's happening with the book that's separate from me can i ask when you first when you first, when you can first remember realizing that stories were important, always. I, I bet you get that response quite a lot. Um, I can't really remember a time that stories were not important to me. Um, to kind of illustrate, when I was very small, I must have been under six because I've asked my mom for context. Um, I used to say, oh, I want to be a teacher. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be this. I want to be that. And I said, I want to be a writer. And my mom bought me a notebook. And I still remember that notebook. And I think I've got it somewhere. And I started writing stories. And it was before I knew about capital letters or full stops. But I remember thinking that stories were something special and that to be able to make my own was like magic, basically. Um, And I kind of put it on the same level as magic like it didn't seem real but it was something I could actually do and I don't know that I've ever lost that sense of the kind of alchemy of it that you're making something out of nothing and I mean that's something that artists do in all sorts of professions I mean they do it when you when you paint or you draw or you sing or you dance you're making something out of nothing or out of you know tools that are component parts that would not become something without you being part of them um but writing's the only one I can do. I can't draw for toffee. So I just, I still love that magic. So that's always been something that's mattered to me. That's so nice that she she got you that that notebook and, and you've still still got, can you remember what your kind of like early, 
you, what your early themes were, what you started when you were writing stories, and what what kind of things you were write, what kind of story your stories were about. Because you know, you can't. You know, this is like when you know you don't even know what capital letters are as well. So, you know, the fact that I remember when I started out writing that it was incredibly. You know, it took me ages to get. You know, I got a sentence out, and I was like, well, it, that was probably a, quite a good predictor of my writing life to come to be fair but like <laughs> um you know I remember you know that, that I must have been very motivated because writing and spelling and getting the words down was not easy for me so can you can you remember what you're kind of what you liked to write about at those times yes unfortunately I can um <laughs> I, I mean I loved fairy tales and I loved sort of princess stories I was a very typical girly girl so um but I think people put girly girls down they don't realize that they're just as cold-blooded as every other child so um i wrote i really loved things like sleeping beauty um the disney one of course and i was kind of like vaguely obsessed with maleficent which is totally normal um and i wrote this story which was about a like a prince who had an evil stepmother and then um she had two children and then she tried to murder them and he saved them and took them into the forest i think i just read children of the new forest and this all influenced me um and then she trapped him in a in like a really complex prison that that someone had to break him out of it was extremely creepy and i'm I'm surprised my mom wasn't mildly worried but um i think it says a lot about who you become as a writer later the kind of stuff that you write when you're young and mine was all sort of slightly bloodthirsty fairy tales which i didn't think were that bloodthirsty at the time but then children don't do they but well yeah no i mean this is what i've experienced with my daughter as well is that she just will will go that extra mile in her what I think is a kind of you know quite you know we're out, out we're out in the woods and one of and I'm pretending to be she says I'm going to be coming along uh, uh I'll be in she had her little Anna doll from Frozen she said and I want you to jump out and pretend to be a robber uh, as we go through and then and then I did and I said stand and deliver and she got a twig and she held it to her Arna doll's throat and said, get back or I'll cut her throat. And I was like, I was really, I was like, what? No, what are you doing? This is the most, she's so committed to this bit. And I had to back away. And then she ran off. And I was like, wow, um, she is much more committed to the story and the bloodthirstiness of it than that was too much for me. I was like, oh. So you've got a future grimdark writer right I, there, don't I you? I know, right? And you really do. But 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 at the same time, I don't think she sees it as. It's funny mm. how that doesn't become grimdark to her that it can cons- exist along the light as well, and that can that could exist in a story where there are also innocent, lovely people who you know aren't saps and don't get you know aren't inevitably. Um, sort of done over because because they're nice like she th- those those contrasts can exist for her and they're not contradictions they're kind of part of the natural story whereas for me I'm like what are you what are you doing um that's so that's can you and that, that was something you were kind of doing all the time do you but do you what was the process of that turning into a thing where you go oh this is a thing I can kind of do or maybe B, if it feels like an identity to you, writer. Mm. Can you remember how that shift progressed? How that, how your relationship to it um, developed as you got older? 
Yes. Uh, I think for most of us, it's a bit of a rocky road. And that was certainly the case for me. So as a kid, it was easy because I was, you know, a precocious writer and um, I would, you know, force my parents to listen to stories and they'd go, oh, that's very good. And I'd be like, yes, it is very good. <laughs> I was an only child. So that does help. Um, and then I kept doing things like writing and um, I think I reached I, I wrote a lot of fanfic which was quite helpful when I was quite young, um, still did till much later. And then I got to a certain point where um, I thought, well, I guess writer was always an identity for me and always part of my identity. And that kind of irritates me because I, I, I profoundly hate the idea of being an artist as part of your identity because it's such, it sounds so up itself, if that makes sense. Um, and yet it's true. So I have to live with that. Um and then I studied English and creative writing at university and I thought I will learn a lot more about writing. I'll learn about the craft. I'll engage with it in a meaningful way. I'll meet other writers. And I don't know quite what happened because it was a good course and the people on it were really lovely and they really made an effort. But it really knocked my confidence in my writing. Um, and it and I got to the point where I thought, I don't know if I can do this. I think I really struggled with with long form and I wasn't sure how to write a full novel and by the nature of a lot of courses, I think they have to focus on shorter fiction. Um, because that's what because, you've got space for in a workshop format, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I, I don't think I quite figured out how to um, connect the desire to write longer fiction with the reality of writing shorter fiction, which I wasn't very good at. And um, and I didn't really, and the course didn't necessarily give me a grounding in the publishing industry. So I think I went into it expecting one thing and getting another. And um I also think that I was going through stuff in my own head that I needed to work out, as a lot of people do in their 20s um, or teens or whatever, wherever you are. And um, I just lost all confidence in my writing and I just didn't write for a long time. And I really struggled to put down a lot of words. And I thought, maybe I can't do this, even though this is my identity. I can't do it. And that's a really horrible conflict to have in yourself. Um, and then through my sort of from 21, 22 ish onwards, I started trying to convince myself to write through anxiety by writing by hand. So if I tried to write on the computer, if I really tried to focus on it, I, you know, started having palpitations. I got sweaty. I got nervous, all of that stuff. So I wrote by hand because it made me feel like it was somehow less concrete, even though it's on paper. And I wrote a novel that way and it took a long time. Um, and that gave me the confidence to write another novel. And a lot of my writing now is is almost anxiety management techniques. So I do a lot of bullet pointing and structuring and handwriting because it makes me feel less nervous about what the final product will be. Um, and I don't think that I really believed that I could get published until the point that I got an agent because I didn't show any of my writing from university onwards to anybody until I started submitting it to agents, at which point it became a professional thing. So it's a bit bizarre, but that's the journey I went on. It's not, I don't, well, you, you say you say it's bizarre, but I was sitting here nodding, going, ah, oh, recognising so much stuff from my own experience. You know, I, I finished university having studied creative writing and I stopped doing fiction for 10 years I couldn't I couldn't do it and it wasn't the people on there were you know I didn't go in and like have you know wasn't pelted with rotten eggs or anything I just 
it was it was hard and then you kind of leave uh, that structure and i so i i didn't find that story and then anxiety well like honestly actually like yeah that's my <laughs> i was like that's that's my life right so like the, all of those things that feel very very close to my writing experience could you talk a little bit about this um you talk, called it an anxiety management technique of bullet pointing and writing longhand i wondered if you could go into that in a little bit more detail about how you managed it uh, are you are you planning stuff out were you planning stuff out before you wrote you know do you plan the whole plot out or how how did that how did you come across come upon that process and how has it developed for you as a writer sure um just to say i mean it shouldn't make me feel better that you also felt the same but it kind <laughs> of does um it just goes to show there's lots of different ways to get to the point of being a, a writer but um so yeah um, with the first novel I wrote, which no one has ever seen, um, writing it by hand, I just basically winged it um, because I would just get into a meditative meditative state, writing by hand, work on it until I got to the end and that was it. Um, with my second novel, with Empire of Sand, um, which is what it eventually became, um, I wrote out an outline of the whole book so I knew where I was going. Um, this did change as I wrote it because things do, but I had the outline and then I um, opened the first document to write the first chapter and I literally bullet pointed everything that happened in that chapter because I decided that if I was bullet pointing it, it wasn't really writing. So it was fine and I didn't have to feel nervous about it. So I was essentially tricking my brain. It's a bit like how some people use Comic Sans to write because then it doesn't count and then they can just... I didn't know that they... That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I keep hearing this thing. Um, So a bunch of authors or a bunch of different writers, um, you know, in fanfic and in deprofic um, would change the font to Comic Sans because then it's not, it doesn't feel like writing to their brain. <laughs> and apparently some people like will, will you know, blur out 2000 words in a go or something because their brain just goes, this is fine. This is Comic Sans. Good for them. Yeah, which I think is amazing. Um, I personally have to write in Korean you, which is kind of weird. Um, but I, yeah, so I bullet pointed the entire chapter and that's what I would do with every chapter. I would bullet point it and then write it. Because if I ever got anxious, I would go, oh, I can see where I have to go next, because that's the bullet point. And the other thing that it did for me is it allowed me to essentially rewrite as I was writing, because I would go, actually, that doesn't feel right. I don't like that phrasing or I don't want to approach it that way. And I would just change it. And it also meant as I changed things as I went along, it was a lot easier to look at my outline and alter the outline to change the plot um, or change my bullet points. And it just made me feel like I had a bit more control. Um, so that's the kind of approach I took. And I did the same thing with my second book. With my third one, it became slightly more complicated because the Jasmine Throne has multiple points of view and uh, um, a slightly more complex outline. But in that one, I used Scrivener, um, which I found really useful because I could basically create a chapter and color code it for the POV and say, this is what's going to happen in this chapter. Um, and it just meant that I was working on a slightly more um, dynamic outline, which gave me control. Um, I have to say, I, I worry less about um, anxiety management now, partly because I can now tell my brain, well, you've done it three, four times because I've handed in other drafts. Um, so you can do it again. And that's quite reassuring to tell your brain that um, if you've done it once, you can do it again. It may not feel like it. And every single time it feels like going uphill and like I'm accomplishing nothing. And then there's a book at the end of it. Mm. So that's quite reassuring. 
Can I ask? I just sorry. I, I'm. I want to move on to like um, themes and like the content, and the characters in a sec. But just to, I just wanted to touch on something a little, little bit crunchy, which was like you talked about using Scrivener, mm-hmm. and um, just for people who haven't used that, what are the differences of that to just using, you know, like writing something in Word or just writing something. Oh, well, there's obvious difference to longhand, I don't, yeah. but you know, like w- w- what is it? You said it was quite useful because it allowed you to color code chapters by POV. Can you just drill down oh, into yeah. that a little bit? Um, so, so sorry. Um, so Scrivener is a, is a writing software and it's like word in that you can write on it, but it has, um, it has really good organizational tools. And the reason I'm hesitating is because I think there are a lot of people who use Scrivener in a lot more nuanced way than I do. But the best advice I got is work out what you need from Scrivener, do that and don't worry about the rest. Um, So it's a tool set up so that you can write novels or short stories or scripts or um, your PhD thesis, for example. Um, It has sections so you can organize, you can create chapters and you can also create um, a section for your research notes or a section for your character bios. Um, you can then format that into a manuscript, um, but it has different views. So you can view your um, your novel as a piece of long form writing, a lot like on Word, but you can also view it as um, separate, like almost um, stickers on a corkboard. Um, mm. So you can move those around and you can use those very visually. Um, you can view it as an outliner, so you can see the outline of your story, um, etc. So it's it's just a very good format to use if you need if you are the kind of person who likes to move things around or likes to see an overview of an outline or you like to see things in a more visual way um which i think is most people so that's what yeah. oh, so that's so you it's kind of like you can kind of it allows you to zoom out a little bit more yes. and see things like structure and that kind of macro level i can imagine that uh, there is quite a few people for whom that would just holding an entire novel in your head for months at a time is like I think it's almost impossible. Yes. Like no, hu- and 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 just that ability that sounds really, really useful. And and maybe again, like you talked about anxiety management, but one of just trying to hold lots of stuff in your memory, I think becomes sort of like low key, low key stress after a while, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. that sounds like it takes some of that burden off. Oh yeah, it definitely does, and it just means that I can do something like say, I'm not going to worry about how this final novel will look right now. I'm just going to write down everything that needs to go in the novel and say, this will be from this point of view. This will be from this point of view. This will be from this one. I can just see that by tags or by color or by outline. And then I can just write which bits I want to write. Um, so it gives me that level of control, which I think is good. Um, oh, oh, c- come, I wanted to ask how you, I know kind of where do, do you get your ideas from uh, questions are sometimes responsible reacted to so i'm not i'm going to sort of frame it slightly differently i, I want to you talk about the sort of genesis for um empire of sand like how that because you said you you'd, you'd written a book before mm-hmm. then that was just just for for you and then you kind of moved on to this this was the first one you submitted i wonder if you could talk about like how that came about and 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 also just the moment when you realized it was a thing you know because we often you're going to get an idea and we're walking around with an idea in our heads and then maybe you're going to make some notes. And I wonder if you could also touch on when you had that moment of going, oh, maybe I'm going to have to write a whole novel now. <laughs> I, so 
funnily enough, I think I've I've talked about um, in other contexts. I've talked about where the where ideas come from um, because I think it's quite interesting from an informational behaviour point of view. I used to be a librarian, so um, and I think we carry a lot of detritus around in our brains, and we pick things um, random pieces of information, and sometimes we hit a point where they sort of synthesise and we get an idea. And I think that happens in lots of contexts outside of writing. Um, but with Empire of Sand, um, one thing I often say is I, I really love the Mughal era. It's an era that is accessible to an English language researcher because a lot of English language research has been done on it. And um, there were a lot of um, English speaking missionaries, etc., who went there. So we have papers I can look at, which means it was an era that was easy for me to start with. I really loved it in um, uh, in Bollywood films that I'd watched. So it was a good place for me to begin setting a story. I knew I wanted to set a story that drew at least a little bit from my own cultural context or diasporic cultural context. Um, and so all of that influenced my decision to tell that particular story. And I also thought about what kind of stories I like to read. And I love romance. I love fantasy. I love women's stories. So all of that influenced what the, what the novel became. Um, but there is... There was also an aspect of wondering what could potentially sell. Um, I worried that no story that drew from my own cultural background could sell, but I still wanted to try. Um, but I knew that there was probably a market for something with elements of romance because I knew that people like me read it, certainly. So there was somebody else out there who'd want it. And I think you do. Some authors will think about the commercial element as well as everything else um, when picking a story from the various ideas that they have. Um, but there's also something that I can't really put into words where you just know a story is good or you just know you want to write it. Um, like you'll have lots of ideas and go, that's pretty cool. Maybe one day I'll write it. That's quite interesting. I'd like to explore that further. And sometimes you'll hit something and go, no, that one. Um, it's a bit like finding a really good pair of shoes that fit perfectly. And you're like, I have to buy these because I'm never I don't have to break these in. Um, they're not going to pinch. Um, they're not just OK. They're the right pair. And I think it was a little bit like that with um, the idea of Empire of Sand. And one of the ways that I can tell an idea is good is that I will be able to outline it without any problems. Um, I know the shape of it from beginning to end. That shape may change, but I know essentially what it is and it knows me. Um, which sounds a bit woo-woo, but I think you know what I mean. Um, and so with Empire of Sand, I outlined it, outlined it in a day, so I knew that I had to give it a go. Wow. Oh, I, I, I must. I just. I mean, it just sounds like the 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 dream. And I know like that belies a whole bunch of work that then comes after that. I know you didn't mm -hmm. just sit down and it and it, it flowed effortlessly out of you with ev without ever running into oh dear, what does this do? And without ever having snags, but um. The idea of, I think I sometimes know there's something I've got to write, but I rarely know whether that's going to translate into something that other people will want to read. But I, I sort of make the deal with myself that it's like, well, but it won't get written if I don't want to write it. So I have to choose from the things that I need to write. That's the, I, I know what people won't read and it's something that I haven't written. Like I know a hundred percent those yes. won't be written. <laughs> so I can only select from the things that I'm likely to finish. So I think that's, that's, that that's, I, I know that I'm kind of weird and that my tastes might not kind of tessellate well with other people, it, but it does sound, I mean, as much as you said you had kind of commercial considerations at the same time, it was an, it was an idea and an outline and a world 
that spoke to you right from the beginning. So you weren't kind of going, well, you know, I'm going to toss away my, you know, what, you know, what my heart is calling me to write and, and, and kind of like tailor my cloth to the, like, to, to the audience. Like this was actually something that you, it was in a genre that you were in an area that you read and it was something that you cared about. And it was something that you felt like you had a story. So, you know, that seems to tick all the boxes. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, like I've said commercial concerns, but that that really isn't the be all and end all of why I write. Of, co- of course, you know, I'd, I'd write even if nobody wanted to buy it. That's why fanfic exists. Um, but I, I mean, when I started really thinking about publishing a novel, that was at the beginning of uni in 2008. And um this really dates me, but in 2008, 2009, there was not a lot of quote unquote diverse fantasy or science fiction, or in fact, anything. Um, I think that I remember talking to a friend about it and saying, I really want to write stories with people who look like me, but how am I going to sell them? And I didn't know how I was going to sell them. And I mean, I was recently involved in um, an interview which talked about Asian fantasy and how that's become a term. And um, one of the people interviewed was Cindy Pond, who wrote um, this really beautiful um, YA fantasy, which drew on her own cultural background and didn't sell because um, people thought that or that those kind of books couldn't sell. And I remember trying to buy that book at the time it came out and it was impossible for me to buy it in the UK, which goes to show that sometimes prophecies are self-fulfilling. If you make something difficult to get hold of, funnily enough, it won't sell. And I remember being so frustrated by that and thinking this is evidence, one, that this kind of fantasy can exist, but two, that they don't want it to. Um, So I've been really, really lucky with timing and that I started actively trying to get published, you know, writing and getting published um, with the kind of stories I wanted to write at a time when publishing wanted them. That was luck. And I'm and also a result of the hard work of authors before me who had things even against the publishing grain and um, people in publishing and readers who did everything in their power to make that work become commercially viable by finding the correct audience. Um, So all of that has worked in my favour, but those are still the stories that I wanted to tell, um, whether they had a commercial audience or not, if that makes sense. Did your first book coming out affect how you wrote? Because up until then, you had kind of been writing, like you said, no one else had seen it, kind of in the... You know, you, for all you knew, no, or, you know, a few agents that you sent it out to might be the only people you, but you could kind of write with the kind of, with your, uh, you, with your, the door closed, with no mm-hmm. one looking mm-hmm. over your shoulder. I wondered if um, finding an audience and having kind of confirmation people going, yeah, you know, people talking about the characters, people leaving reviews, you know, people interested and, you know, you're writing um, these books. Like, did that, change your experience of of writing did it make it easier did it um did you start did you respond to reader reactions and you know filter that a factor that into your work how was your experience of having an audience response for the first time i think it gave me more of a sense of who i am as a writer um or at least who i am as a writer a a published professional writer um I guess another way of putting that is it gave me a sense of what my brand is, which sounds deathly, but is still true. Um, 
before I guess I didn't really know what kind of writer I was because I had no context for that and then people started reviewing it or reading it and um that was really nice in a way and it gave me a sense of what people liked about my work but it also gave me a sense of what I liked about my work because sometimes you'll read something that you shouldn't read um that critiques your work in a certain way and you go how do I feel about this critique because critique is part of the process of being a published author do I agree with it or do I not like um I think quite a common thing people say about my work is that it's quite slow paced and I thought is that something I should fix or is that just how my work is and then you start um looking at other authors that you like and I think they all have certain quirks or things that might be flaws to one reader but maybe pros to another and I go would I want them to change that or is that just an aspect of their work that is characteristic and therefore something that's also part of their appeal but may not appeal to some people because of course you know not everyone likes everything that's just normal um so I guess it made me reflect on who I am and how I want to write and how my work will be received and you don't have to necessarily write to please anybody except yourself um but you but it's good to make that decision consciously and to go do I do I want to engage with what readers are saying and alter my work accordingly or do I want to say I understand why people would say that but this is the way that I write and that's not aggressive or you know they're wrong or anything like that that's this is a decision I've made about my art and my craft and how I approach writing that may be at odds with what some people want but is nonetheless the correct decision for me well you you probably from a, a workshop if anyone who's been through workshop situations as well you I mean I went into them desperate that I was not going to have any ego everything that people told me I was going to go be like thank you and I was going to go away and do it and then to my horror people didn't always people rarely agreed there was certainly at least sort of like there would not be a complete consensus on a piece and every aspect of it and I was like oh gosh I'm gonna have to decide who I'm listening to like who like who can I reasonably who's asking the kind of questions that make it into the piece that I want it to be and who do I think it's never going to be right for because they just don't like fantasy maybe and I can't you know I can't take that bit out uh, and 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 it, and and, it, and having to take ownership of those bits you know for, at first I felt a bit like you I was like is this am I just going I is it like the kind of Popeye school of of self-criticism you know I am who I am you're just like going or but you can't uh, you can't appeal you literally can't appeal to everyone no. and, and and you have to start making those decisions and I don't know how you felt, but I, I found it, you know, a, a quite liberating, really, to realise some people would just have to choose from some of the other books that are out. No, there. I, it made it makes me feel better too, and um, it's that weird thing of you have to have so much humility, but also so much confidence. Um, like you have to accept that your work is not going to be for everybody. Your work is flawed. You're always trying to improve it and strive to be better, um, but at the same time, you have to believe that there is something inherently good about what you do that appeals to somebody if, if even if it's only yourself um that you have that your work is inherently good and you have the capability to improve or change it but only you can decide what that should look like and that's even true when you're working with an editor because if you're lucky and, and i have been thank god you'll get an editor that gets your vision and will know what you want to do but it's still a conversation when you're working with them because they may say 
you need to change this or this is wrong or this doesn't make sense. And you have to decide how you approach that and whether you agree with them. And sometimes one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was sometimes you'll be told that something doesn't work and you may disagree. But there's probably something else that doesn't work that is that this is a symptom of a different problem and you need to do the diagnosis to find out what's causing it. Um, which I found really helpful because it might be something like um, somebody's motivation may not seem true or reasonable, but that might be because you were not interrogating the way people think enough or your world building isn't sound enough to support a certain viewpoint. Or it, it, There's all sorts of things that might play into that. Um, when what, what? OK, so there's a question that I've been dancing around because I, I, I want to ask always very literary questions, but sometimes I just want to know something just from a kind of and, and, oh, and I'm just interested I know it's like asking you to sort of cho choose between like asking someone to choose their favorite child or something but I was wondering if you have a favorite character that you've written um I'm sorry that that's not more like kind of like what the themes what is it but but I like those kind of questions and I'm asked them and I if you if it's too silly don't worry but I, I just wonder if you've got a favorite character that you've written or one that you are particularly proud of or one that you're like oh yeah I nailed that in that moment this kind of like moment of change for them yes that's that's that was the juice that was what I was going for you can you can always ask me silly questions they're my favorite um and it's not a silly question I I guess um I loved Meho from Empire of Sand because she was like my first sort of introverted but, you know, good at managing people female character. And I, I loved writing her so much. Um, and she's always going to have a soft spot in my heart because I felt like she was exactly the kind of character I wanted from fantasy and hadn't really got. Um, because the world around her is difficult and often hopeless and yet she's always thinking of ways to manage it and manage herself and um accordingly probably i also really love marlene in um the jasmine throne and she's um she's a princess who um tried to depose her brother the emperor and was almost burned alive for it but is still alive and is now imprisoned um and like meher she has um she's very cerebral and has a real sense of how to manipulate people to get what she wants but what drove Meho was always trying to be a good person and do the right thing Malini is not driven by these same instincts um so it's a little bit like unleashing all of that and seeing what happens um so they're kind of two sides of exactly the same coin and I enjoyed writing both of them quite a lot it's funny how how that the princesses and bloodthirstiness that you talked about earlier in your kind of like your your, your <laughs> seminal work is like it's, it's almost like that's just a seed that's been sort of looking for different ways to spread. What do you think, you know, because you write about people often, and, and by the way, I, I try to apologise to people for explaining their own work back to them. I'm making a proposition, a hypothesis, which you, please you, you say, Tim, that is it, nonsense. <laughs> I know you, you understand the themes you're going for. I'm not trying to do that. But I, um, you write about people who are often... Um, find themselves in circumstances where they're constrained by um, certain responsibilities or conventions or expectations or the weight of history or their own um, compunctions or, or um, and I, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of characters move what you think 
has driven you or interests you about writing about characters who are moving through these quite um, almost kind of like don't know if this makes sense but almost kind of like crystalline social structures that they're kind of navigating mm. and moving around or maybe it's a bit more like a dance but that kind of I wonder if you could talk about that a, a, a little bit because to me it, it seems really interesting that there's often there are people kind of like like you say they're having to look three steps ahead and and, and navigate and decide which rules they want to follow and which ones they want to break or bend yeah so Part of that, I think, is drawing from my own experiences. Um, but I don't think those experiences are by any means unique. So I grew up in an extended family where my parents really put a lot of stock behind how you behave within the extended family, um, which is true, again, for a lot of people. So it was a lot about, you know, this is how you should greet people. This is the respect you should show your elders. This is the respect you should show other people. This is how you should interact in social situations. And a lot of that is the tools that you give children in order to allow them to be socially adept so that they can do what they need to do and survive and thrive. Um, but some of that stuff also by its nature is a double edged sword that constrains people or constrains children as they grow up and makes it so that they repress certain feelings or do not defend themselves when they should. It's so, you know, it's complicated, but that's social interaction, I suppose. Um, so I always find it difficult to relate to kind of the power fantasies you sometimes find in fiction um, and not just in fantasy in a lot of fiction. And you see it in romance as well, where someone's like, well, screw you, I'm going to do what I want. And, you know, you can't stop me. And if you don't accept me as I am, then you don't love me. And that just wasn't my understanding of how the world worked so although i could read it it wasn't any kind of catharsis for me because it didn't feel emotionally real um and again i don't think my experience is unique i think there are lots of women in every culture who feel like they have to act a certain way in order to um in order to fit in or to thrive and you find that a lot in collectivist cultures and i think there's plenty of us who you know no matter what gender or culture we come from have had to act in certain ways in order to protect our families or to care for the whole rather than the individual. And um, a story about an individual striving against everything to get what they want doesn't reflect our sense of who we are or what we could ever possibly achieve. Now, fantasy, of course, isn't anything we could achieve anyway, because we don't have magic here, as far as I know. But um, I still think it's really interesting to look at the world and say, okay, most of us live within power structures we have very control over. You know, sometimes we make decisions in order to protect our mother or our father or our, or our siblings. We don't usually have to protect them against some kind of like humongous evil dark lord or something. But, you know, um, if we take it to that level in fantasy, it, you know, it still has an emotional reality. Then within those structures, how can we do the right thing? Or how can we preserve our own autonomy or how can we get power or how can we protect the people we love how do we do that in those structures and that really interests me as a theme and it interests me because i'm interested in real world power structures like imperialism and colonialism and even patriarchy and anything that um is mechanized to constrain us or to arrange the world in a certain way so some people have power and some people don't that, yeah, I was uh, as you were saying that I was thinking, and I guess this might. That's a thank you. Sorry, I was. I, I you finished the answer, and I, I was, just yeah. Sorry, I was slightly uh, lost in 
in, 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 in right contemplating it. Um, <laughs> what are the challenges then? And and this again is a. I'm not going to apologise for every question I ask because that will get tedious. But um, what are the challenges you think? There are some assumptions. I, th- I suppose what I was getting, what, what I was thinking of when you said that was sparking in my head was that there is a kind of assumption. You have a protagonist, and the protagonist has to protag. They have to go out and do this kind of Campbellian um, hero of a thousand faces kind of journey, and that is the proper mm-hmm. business of fantasy and adventure. Is that a a, a a great man of history goes out and and shifts the universe ar- around his and you know in the you know it normally is presented as a kind of like very masculine it is a he who goes and does this around around his will what do you think are the challenges but also the opportunities of not taking that as the the the, the kind of template for fantasy and writing something that is about um like you say the the community and society and people existing within that um and because what you're describing is not passivity is it because some people some people no, i think reflexively no. go or i've heard you know heard it and depending on whether you being charitable whether you think they're doing this mischievously or that it's in sincere worry they go but i can't just if I have my protagonist just be passive and accept their their lot, then they'll be boring and the story won't have any engine to it because I've been told they a main character has to make decisions and do actions. So could you just maybe pick that apart a little bit? So um, not to sort of throw a spanner in the works, but I've I've read plenty of stuff about the idea that um, the conflict-based narrative or the narrative of the protagonist is, you know, having to strive for something as the individual is a very Western kind of storytelling um, conceit. And I think that Aliette de Bodard has written something about this, probably Jeanette Ung, she's written about everything. Um, they've written about everything in interesting ways um, that interests me. So I might want to rephrase that. They haven't written about everything, but they've written about a lot of things that interest me. Um, so they've probably written about this too. Um, it, so some of those kind of narrative conceits are from a particular narrative history and therefore have weight because we've read in that narrative history generally. And there are other ways of approaching stories um, that can still have a lot of power to them. But that said, if you still want to stick with Western narrative conceits to a certain level while also writing stories that don't follow that kind of typical protagonist journey, um, there's a lot of conflict in inner conflict that people have or even in interpersonal conflict um that is very meaningful and powerful and pushes the protagonist forward even if you're sort of taking a viewpoint where you're putting the focus on the collective rather than the individual and um i also think that readers really love stories about family and found family and journeys that aren't just about the individual um they really crave them and there's not enough of them i mean Look at Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom. Those aren't really stories about an individual achieving a goal. If anything, they're often about an individual realising that their individual goal is damaging and actually what you want is something that protects the whole rather than the individual. Um, So those kind of high stories are about that often. Um, Nick Nick Eames's book, which I forgot the name of, which I keep doing, which is really bad about, um, which is based on the idea of like the band getting back together, is again about the collective rather than the individual. 
Um, so if people want to tell those stories, there's already arguably you can look at different narrative traditions for some guidance or you can put the focus on the interpersonal conflict or the interior conflict that people have. Or you could just look at the existing tradition of sort of like getting the gang back together, kind of heist ish stories, um, which are all essentially about finding something as a whole rather than as an individual and look at how they weave together different narratives and stories in order to get you that kind of catharsis that you want from a piece of fiction. Thank you. That's really, I, I, I think, yeah, there's, there's just like loads out there. Isn't there? And I wonder, yeah. I, I do wonder whether maybe part of the confusion is, 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 is presenting the two as a kind of a binary rather yeah. than them existing on a spectrum with lots of stuff and you can move that slider up and down and you'll often find stories it's very difficult to find a story that is solely about one person oh you yeah, know, like, yeah like a kind of like a shoot 'em up character just going out and they have no friends and no ensemble with them um so yeah i guess there's yeah there's different positions i wonder if you could talk a little bit about romance because that's an element that we of the stories that we and, and I, I feel like this maybe kind of quite naturally shades into um ro romance now, I'm talking about it like it's a, a genre, but of course, romance can exist in any story. But I'm, I'm, I'm aware as sort of someone who doesn't read heavily within what would be considered like the romance genre as a, as a genre yeah. itself. I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about um, how that genre or how you're reading in that, how, how you consider your work in relation to that and how that affects the plot and what and how that allows you to because I, I would just like to I just kind of like to hear your thoughts really oh yeah sure I mean um the romance genre definitely I, I feel a bit tricky it's a bit tricky to say that certain books have romance in them even if they're not a romance because I feel like you hit a conflict where romance as a genre is 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 extremely diverse with lots of subcategories um but it has very strong conventions that you have to adhere to and I sometimes feel people in in other genres can be quite derogatory about that because they're like oh well you should surprise people but actually no there is this is a you know it's a bit like if you have a crime you're gonna have to have some crime take place because that's what crime does if you have a romance you have to have a happy ending um that could be happy for now but it should probably be happy ever after because that's how romance functions that's that's literally the point if anything you can have a love story that doesn't end like that but it's not a romance um so i would say that my first two books are definitely romances or have heavy elements of romance because they have a happily ever after but the jasmine throne is the first book in a trilogy so i cannot promise that it is a romance but it definitely <laughs> has a love story um it's yeah but i love romance as a genre i've always read it I think that nobody does character work and tension that just comes out of characters better than romance authors. It's a masterclass. If you ever want to write any kind of interpersonal conflict, you should go read some of the best romance authors like Courtney Milan, um, Laura Kinsale are just just two of my favourites. Nalini Singh. I could keep going, so I'm going to stop. Beverly Jenkins. Um, because I think Courtney Milan, um, who writes a lot of historical romance and some contemporary, said... What you have to do with romance is you have to take two characters and create an interpersonal conflict with them so significant that it's like an immovable boulder. And then you have to move the boulder um, and you have to do that just with characters. It's astonishingly hard. Um, 
but yeah I love to read it and I love that focus on characters and I love that it often deals in really interesting ways with trauma and with family and with um, agency and I try and bring that all into my own work because that's what I like to read so I, I want to write it too and um, all my books have elements of that I think it's very unlikely that I would write a book without a romance because I just like them so much. So they're always going to be there. That doesn't necessarily mean that I've read lots of books that don't have romance, but it's just something that I really like to write. And um, like I said, I think that bringing those elements in and using some of the kind of conventions of the romance genre allows you to do a lot of interesting character work. So yeah, it's just a cool genre. So just to recap to make sure i've understood that uh, yeah sorry i did ramble a love, a a love story no no is brilliant but um a, a love story is distinct from romance in the in in romance you have very sort of oversimplifying you have two you have these characters who um are kind of destined to be together somehow, you know, for, for certain values of destiny. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that they're the two that are kind of like going to be drawn together. And there's something from the beginning, there's some spark or something that makes us think, surely these two are meant for each other or surely. But there is something in their character or maybe something um, in societally, some, some difference that means they can't be together. Then they go through this process and then by the end, they overcome that something changes and then they are together at the end it's distinct from a love story where that could be an adjunct to a, a greater story but there isn't necessarily some great obstacle yeah yeah is that sort of roughly the distinction you'd make roughly i mean i'd say that you know the the conflict in romance can happen even when a couple's together or it can happen before or you know it's but essentially it's about usually two people, but it can be more than two people who fall in love and um, face conflicts which are often interpersonal, may come from their own trauma, may come from their family, may come from society, may come from something else. You know, there are fantasy romances where it could come from, I don't know, dragons, you know, some kind of conflict that gets between them. And um, but we know that they're going to end up together and then they do. Um, but the trick of romance is that, you know, they're going to end up together, but the book has to make you feel like it's a possibility that they won't. Um, you know, you have to feel a genuine peril, a genuine sense that these people may not end up together, but you know that they will. Um, so you get that relief of having that ending after the kind of the peril of getting there. And of course, then for the because there was a period. Okay, so with comedy, like I was the, the kind of plot of comedy is like tying that knot where this person's with the wrong person. This person has lost, you know, uh, has lost the family treasure. This heir is not known, you know, that is, is blah, blah, blah. So there's all these people that are in the wrong place and this person doesn't have money and they're in. So you tie that knot tighter and tighter. And then at the end, there's this great moment of the knot being untied and then this person ends up with the person they're meant to be with this person finds that the treasure was buried underneath you know the floor that breaks you know they and then they can save the house and and there's a period in kind of like ealing comedies where they would build up to this absurd ending you know with the tension getting higher and higher and then the film would just end with the characters you know running away or being in trouble and you didn't get that untying and it was really disappointing and rubbish yeah. like you, and, and i guess what you're saying is that, that, that actually part of the enjoyment is not anyone reading genuinely thinking 
maybe this is going to end on a downer, but more like I can't understand how the author is going to contrive yes, yeah. to get these two characters together because this seems like an impossible situation. Yes, exactly. And they've really stuffed it up or someone else has stuffed it up for them or circumstances have made this impossible. How could this possibly go well? Yes, and I think that that's exactly it. That's exactly what what works. And I think that sometimes there are some people that will critique the fact that readers want those genre conventions to be met. I think there are really interesting and innovative ways that you can throw genre conventions on their head if that's something you're actively trying to do. But, you know, it doesn't have to be done every time. There's something very powerful about going into something knowing what you're going to get. It's a bit like, you know, you can go for a haute cuisine, like fine dining meal that's going to surprise and interest you. That may, you know, also, but it's not going to be a burger, right? If you want a burger, you're going to get a burger. And you can get a really nice burger with really nice bread, etc. And, you know, you can have burgers that people will queue around the corner for because they're so amazing. But it's still a burger and it's not a burger if it's a piece of lettuce with a tomato in the middle and nothing else. So, yeah, um, that's my <laughs> theory of writing. Um, but, yeah, so that that's kind of how I feel. In romance, you have certain genre conventions that need to be met for it to be a romance. That doesn't mean that people haven't done really interesting things breaking those conventions. But maybe you're doing something different if you're convention breaking. And so and and so that means sorry to um but that means that like these kind of like courtly romances that you have in kind of like I guess it would be like Edo period Japan, mm -hmm. like influenced by Tang Dynasty China and stuff, where you have people who maybe are from two different parts of society or there's reasons why they can't be together and often in those stories you get to the end and everybody they, dies they, yeah. yeah like they don't get together and it's kind of a it's partly an affirmation of the status quo mm -hmm. or the like ongoing societal structure is kind of like is, is kind of respect keeps last but also they do but they do sort of get together in that there's this idea that their kind of love is sort of more resonant because of the sacrifice and horrible death or tragedy or kind of like you know pining for the at the moon or whatever that that actually and that's you know actually that's across a few genres and but that that isn't that's tragedy rather you'd say rather than romance I'd, I'd say that it would be a bit um in a not inappropriate, but it'd be wrong of me to try and shove that into romance as a Western, you know, category of fiction rather than taking it on its own terms. I mean, something like um, when I think of those kind of stories, I always think of like Chinese dramas because that's where I've encountered them. Chinese dramas have their own genre conventions um, and their own history. So I'm not going to say that's Perhaps I'm not going to say that's a romance or not a romance because it's it's adhering to its own genre conventions and perhaps subverting its own genre conventions. And for me to then say that is or isn't a romance seems kind of like meaningless. Um, I do think that there are there are authors who take stuff from those genres and bring them into romance like. Um, oh, God, I can't remember her name. There's an author who's written a whole load of um Chinese history influenced romances um whose name I can't remember at all I'm gonna look her up sorry um so if you hear me typing that's what's happening um and uh but she gives them happy endings because that's what readers of the romance genre expect 
Whereas um, Jeannie Lynn, that's it. Whereas people who were reading, let's say, um, not to spoiler the book, She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan should probably not expect uh, a H.E.A. romance because that's explicitly not what Shelley Parker Chan is writing. Their book is drawing on Chinese narrative conventions. So you should expect it to adhere to those conventions, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I guess I... And again, please feel free to say don't want to talk about this, but that brings us quite nicely onto something um, that I think is, you know, quite interesting, which is when audiences are bringing certain expectations to books, um, whether they be sort of genre expectations or cultural expectations. Um, how do you think you know I, I suppose we'll stick to authors because as as authors that's the only side we've got control over how do how much do you think the you as an author or authors need to be meeting their audience where they are you know and, and how much it, and, and how do you avoid essentially i suppose like, i spoke to the poet byron vincent mm-hmm when he was talking about his own experiences of mental health and we've both talked to him, there's a desire to make the audience feel comfortable and go, haha, like I, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I, you know, I, I was sectioned, but it's fine. I'm all right now. Look at me, the crazy nutter, you know, to do kind of gags that make them feel not uncomfortable by yeah. meeting them where they are, that kind of almost tell on yourself a little bit. And I, it's not, par- it's not exactly parallel, but for an author, you know, is there a danger in meeting the audience's expectations of that you kind of warp or you're not how do you stay true to your, your a vision and the story you want to tell you know when you wrote your first one you were like I'm not sure if anyone is going to want to read this because I don't see that much of it out there of course there are pre not to erase kind of mm-hmm. precursors that you knew who'd done a lot of work before but how do you meet an audience who might have completely different genre expectations while at the same time going this is the thing like this is the traditions I'm working from I'm not going to change it to kind of because you think that stories look differently like I wonder how you manage that because that seems like a contradiction and not easy I honestly don't know I mean that's why I guess a lot of marginalized stories struggle to be told isn't it I mean from um, an ableist perspective or mental health or um, if you're talking about other cultural backgrounds or you know other sexualities or other experiences of gender all of those you know, it's a huge umbrella, but anybody who doesn't fit the kind of the the narrative norm in publishing has to fight a more uphill battle because you're both trying to be commercially viable enough to get published in the first place and to find an audience while also trying to tell an authentic story. And that balance, I, I don't know that I can say that there is one way to find that balance that's meaningful because I think everybody has to make their own decisions about what they're willing to do for that. Um I know that with um, Empire of Sand and Realm of Ash, as a very small example, um, I didn't use a lot of, necessarily use a lot of Indian words. Um, And I say Indian broadly because I I don't mean necessarily Punjabi or Hindi or Gujarati, but just kind of like a word from a language used in India that would be used to describe a certain thing. So I talked about, you know, tunics, trousers, shawls, lentil, broth, things like that, instead of using the actual words for them. Um, or picking specific words 
And I, when I went into the Jasmine throne, I went in with a lot more confidence. So I did a bunch of things that I wouldn't have done in my first two books because I didn't feel confident to do them. Publishing probably would have accepted them, but I didn't necessarily know that. Um, and so I started the book off talking about a girl drawing a balu over her head. Don't tell you what balu is. You've just got to figure it out from context. Um, I, you know, I call the the Empire Balajad Vipa, which is a pretty long ass name if you don't speak, you know, let's say Hindi, just as a random pick, even though I don't. Um, so, you know, I talk about ghee, rasmalai, you know, laddus. Uh, so I talk about foods that are real. And my editor didn't ask me to put in a glossary for any of that. And I didn't. Um, so in, it's a small thing. But it's one way that I created a certain level of cultural context that demands the reader, if not from the same background or broadly from the same background, um, to do some research. So, and um, and you wonder when you do that, are you pushing certain readers away or are you drawing certain readers in? Because somebody because if I read a book like that, that did that, I would feel drawn in. I'd be like, oh, this is for me because I understand you know i'm the in crowd of this group and when you are not usually the in crowd that's that's quite powerful um i sort of told myself that for something like that the people who would be turned off by that are probably not my readers anyway because why the hell would they put, pick the book up in the first place and if they did they were probably reluctant to be there um on a larger level of things like genre convention um it's a tricky one. I think that you have to take some risks in order to change and grow fiction. Because, you know, if it, it might sound pretty grand, but if you're part of a narrative tradition, you have to make certain risks if you want that narrative tradition to change. And um, I have really loved reading some of the books that are coming out soon. I mean, I'm going to mention She Who Became the Sun again because it did things that come from a different tradition but make them explicitly part of a western english language writing tradition and i think that's cool and it also allows other people to do that too and a lot of the audience are people who are hungry for that and want new things i mean that's why people watch dramas in translation because they want to experience new things they want good stories however those stories come um and i think ken leo's um Dandelion Dynasty did something similar where it did something that came from a different tradition in a really interesting way that interact with existing American and Western narratives and opened the door for more writers. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question. I think basically there isn't really an answer, but sometimes people have to take risks and have to have confidence in their their vision, whether that's on a like a micro or a macro level in order for anything to change. And um, I think the key to any of that is to have respect for your readers. So I think there's a big difference between, say, in romance, getting rid of a happily ever after, knowing that you're going to upset readers and, you know, essentially disrespect their understanding of the genre um, versus going into that and writing a story that draws from different narrative traditions and perhaps doesn't have a happily ever after because you're drawing from those traditions and saying explicitly, this is a romance, but not the way that you're used to seeing it um, and allowing your readers to engage with that with with understanding well, I guess with with an understanding a tacit understanding that this is not necessarily going to meet their expectations but is is meant to open a door for them does that make any sense 
Yeah, it does. I, I think you're, uh, yeah, and I was, it, you know, forgive me because it was an incredibly broad question. I was kind of No, like, no, it was an interesting question. Like, can, you, can you solve the, you know, the, the, this entire, uh, uh, this abstract problem, can you solve it for every different instance of it and every variation but I think I absolutely get what you're 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 saying and it's and it's it's a tension and I I, you know I I get what you're saying that 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 we kind of like we have to we 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 kind of pick our battles in Mm -hmm. that and and it and it strikes me that it just strikes me that from what you were saying that a lot of how you described getting um conveying kind of cultural information it's like the the basic idea of kind of like incluing when you're writing fantasy or mm-hmm. SF where you don't have a character pick up a a magic or a science fiction item and then like just do a monologue explaining it and you don't stop the story you you show things in context and people pick it up so it strikes me that sometimes when you're writing this for maybe a kind of western audience who might not be familiar with some things you're kind of doing that process twice over because yeah. there's some things that are genuine cultural information that a reader can come to the text and know from the from their experience and then there'll be other things that they'll encounter in context in the book that they couldn't because that's not that's something that you've that's part of your world's law right sorry um, the bell decided to go right now Just, <laughs> yeah um but so so that must be that, that, that's quite interesting that there's a kind of like there's real traditions and then there's you know your world that you've created mixed in and they're having to use but I would have thought that any kind of reader who's used to reading fantasy and SF is used to being entering a world part of the pleasure of it is entering a world where you don't where you learn a bit about the world where you become literate in that world I, right? I think it's 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 complicated because I think that there is both comfort and adventure reading and not all readers want one thing more than another so um i think a lot of people go into fantasy reading much like anything else wanting comfort they want familiar worlds that they know that they can engage with that will give them a pleasurable experience they'll enjoy the book and then they'll finish it that's fine that's not something that's bad um so you know it's a bit like you know not a great example but but the bulgariad or something you know you know what you're going to get you open it you're going to get that, you're going to read it, you're done. And you can find lots of fantasy novels that kind of fit that mould. Um, whereas there are other readers, or sometimes the same reader, depending on what mood they're in, who want something that's going to challenge them or give them something different. And then they'll have to actively engage with it, learn about it. You know, they'll have to do that process of, I've opened a fantasy novel and I don't know what this world is and I have to get to grips with this world before I can understand this book. Um, and that's exciting. Um and they may want that and then they, yeah, etc. But I guess the issue is, of course, that you don't get the choice to be comfort reading if you're writing from a non-Western perspective because you're bringing something new to the table. Now, hopefully, as more and more books come out from um, a larger range of authors than have previously necessarily had a big marketing push or come out from the big five or, or whatever it might be, um, that that comfort level will go up and that adventure level will go down so that um, people by and large will be more comfortable engaging with more diverse range of fantasy if that makes sense it does it does yeah and i'm kind of like very mindful of the fact that the 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 danger of my framing it in that way is that you can make people's whole cultural histories just another kind of like ooh exoticized like oh today i'm going to read about space and then (laughs) tomorrow i'll read about 
uh, I'll read about uh, South Asia. This oh, other one thing that I find like... really difficult is when people say, I learned so much about India from this book. And I'm like, oh, please don't read my book to learn about India. You're going to learn absolutely nothing. All of this is made up. Like I've drawn on, you know, cultural mythology or history. But still fantasy. You will learn about as much about real Asia from my book as you will learn about real medieval England from, say, Tolkien wasn't yeah, it's a, trying to draw from that anyway, but you see what I mean. It's not, it's not a good idea. I, I do. It's, it's like somebody re, um, saying that they know all about rural Finland because they just watched the Moomins. Like it's like <laughs> it's, it's like you know you, and to an extent, you know, having Finnish in-laws and having been to Finland, to an extent, there are elements of the Finnish character that are exemplified through through the Moomins for sure. But there are no moon. There well. You know, to my knowledge, I've not seen yet seen a, a Moomin in, in in Finland. So you've got to like, it's not a great, it's not a great no. in <laughs> on the country. You know, like, um, so the final thing I sort of wanted to kind of like round things off with is for people who are listening, who are, um, you know, would like to um, write themselves and and have maybe kind of like been were either working on a novel or have been kind of like, you know, worrying around the edges for. It. Have you got any kind of um suggestions or advice or process tips or anything that can like maybe help people make that push because i know it's been a very difficult time for a lot of people in terms of productivity because everybody's been had this kind of ambient stress and anxiety from just the world um but i I wondered if you had any sort of like thoughts on that or anything that you could share that well i mean we both talked a fair bit about um anxiety management and how you know, using sort of an oral longhand or et cetera helps with that. Um, the one thing I'd say is I read a lot of advice when I started writing that didn't fit me and that made me anxious because I was like, am I wrong because I can't follow this process? So I think every writer feels weird about their process. They all think their process is odd or that they should be doing it a different way. The only process that works is the one that works for you. So try different approaches to writing and see which one works. And that is the one you should use. And perhaps it will change. And that is also fine. And um, give yourself permission to experiment and find what actually functions for you as an artist. And also don't beat yourself up. Have fun. Do the best you can. It takes a long time to write a book or a short story or a poem and do it right. So don't push yourself harder than you need to take the time that it takes unless you're under contract then you have to do it in the time that you've got but (laughs) that's different yeah that's a it's always an interesting experience but thank you tasha that's really i think that's fantastic advice of course it is um um if people want to um find you know uh find you online in a professional sense or um uh, then where's the best place for them to go to find out more about your work um i've got a website which is tashasuri.com um or i'm on twitter and instagram so on twitter i'm tasha drinks tea because i like tea and then i'm tasha suri on instagram so you can go follow me on any of those and i have a newsletter as well so you have loads of different places that you can follow me if you want to know more um and i think that's it really cool and um i will put links to all of those in the show notes of today's episode and uh i think this episode will come out just before your book um oh, wow. comes out but um your um latest one is going to be um the jasmine throne right yes yeah the jasmine throne which is out on or was out i guess on june the 8th or june the 10th if you're in the uk awesome um and uh 
everyone listening, um, thank you for listening and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.